at the temptation of the serpent when God shows up and asks Adam what he's done and Adam blames Eve and he asks Eve what she's done and Eve blames the serpent. Then he curses the serpent and in that he says that he's going to put hostility, enmity, division between the seed of the woman and that's a small s, and the, or I'm sorry, the seed of the woman is capital S, and the seed of the serpent. But that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, the head representing his authority and his power. And ever since that time, the serpent has been on the lookout for this great deliverer. And you'll remember in the time of Moses, when the great deliverer was born, there was a slaughter of the children in Egypt. You'll remember that the Pharaoh gave the decree that all the baby boys in Egypt should be killed. And, of course, the, the midwives, the Egyptian midwives would not do that. And, and the parents of Moses put him in the basket and put him in the Nile, and he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and you know the story. But the enemy tried to destroy what he thought was this seed, this deliverer. Obviously, he didn't destroy Moses, and Moses wasn't the ultimate deliverer to begin with. But then came the time of Christ, and that was another time that there was a great mass slaughter of the innocents because when King Herod heard from the wise men that had come that there was a king born to the Jews, then he estimated the time when the wise men didn't come back to him like uh, he had asked them to because they just felt like they should not do so. Then he demanded that all of the baby boys that were two years and younger be killed. Well, that didn't happen. He didn't slaughter, although many baby boys were killed. Uh, he didn't get Jesus because the angel of the Lord had warned them to go to Egypt in a dream. And so he was safe and sound during that time. But ever since that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, made by God himself, the enemy's been waiting to devour this deliverer. Why? Because he knew that in this deliverer was the power and the authority to crush him to defeat him. And so we see basically the Christmas story from heaven's perspective here in Revelation chapter 12. Now, an interesting thing before we move on in this chapter, do you remember the story of Job? I, don't, I know you know the story of Job, but I've always thought there was an interesting part of the story. The, the whole story begins with a conversation that's held between Satan and God. And it says that Satan shows up to appear before God with all the other angels as they show up to, to appear before God. And God asks him where he's been, and he talks about where he's been and what he's doing. God brings Job up. Satan doesn't. And uh, then, of course, Satan makes the statement, well, the only reason Job fears you is because you've hedged him in on every side. I submit to you that the reason Satan already knew that he was hedged in by God is because he has already been trying to attack him and couldn't get through. And so he asked permission to, to, to actually ask God to reach out and, and afflict Job, which he will not do. But he does give Satan limited, a limited scope of permission to step out and begin to wreak havoc in Job's life. Now, we all know the end of the story, although it was a terrible loss for Job, not only of his health and of his family and of his possessions and of his livelihood. After a period of time, God restored back double to Job everything that he had lost. But the point of, of me bringing that up is I always thought it was interesting that Satan appeared before the Lord to accuse Job. And I've always wondered, well, how long did that last? Is that still going on? What is taking place? 
want you to keep reading with that in mind. It says that, of course, we know that, that when this great dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven, the stars of heaven are referring to the angels that Satan drew with him in the rebellion, which are now demonic spirits uh, that do the bidding of Satan. In verse 5, it says that this woman, Israel, did bear a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Of course, we know he's talking about Jesus here. But though Satan was waiting to devour this male child, the child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, I'm not going to get into some type of end-time speculation about what the 1,260 days mean. Let's just suffice it to say for uh, a layman like me, it just simply means a long, long time. That Israel was placed, in, that woman was placed in a place of safety. Verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. Now he makes very clear who he's talking about, in case you wonder why I was saying this is the devil and wondered if it was being interpreted correctly. He just makes it very clear. That great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, where is he cast? He is cast to the earth, and his angels, that third of the angels that went along with him in his rebellion, were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom or rule of our God and the power of his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one, has come. Why? The accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. When did that happen? Well, if we follow the narrative in order, it took place when Israel gave birth to this Christ child and Satan was set to devour and destroy this anointed one, which we all know he attempted to do not only when he was a child, but we know that he's the one who motivated the chief priest and the Pharisees to, to bring Jesus to that point and then cause them to, to rally Pontius Pilate and eventually have Jesus crucified. And he obviously thought he had accomplished his task because in observing the life of Jesus, he knew even the Bible tells us, even the people of Jesus' day observed there's never been anyone like this man. There's never been anyone who could teach with the authority that he teaches with. There's never been anyone who can do miracles and signs and wonders like he does, bringing sight to the blind and causing the dumb to speak and the deaf to hear and the crippled to walk and the leprous to become clean again and even causing the dead to be raised. There's never been anyone like this one. So Satan understood who he was dealing with, and I'm sure when the crucifixion was over and Jesus said it is finished and he gave up his spirit and he was taken down from the cross and put into the tomb, I'm sure he breathed a sigh of relief thinking that's it. I've actually one-upped God. This is the seed that he said would destroy me, but I did it. I failed twice before 
Actually, there were many times that Satan tried to mess with the seed. I've just mentioned the two most obvious. But I failed all these times, but not this time. This time, I've won until three days later. And the tomb, uh, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus is out of the tomb and risen once again. But the Bible says war broke out in heaven, and Satan was cast down to the earth, the one who was accusing. Wasn't that what he was doing with Job? See, a lot of us think that Satan was cast down before the Garden of Eden episode ever took place. But apparently not because he was showing up accusing Job. He was accusing. Now, we know Satan is still an accuser. But the thing is, for the child of God now, the accusations don't stick. How do I know that? Because Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me and you as a child of God free from the law of sin and death. Our body is now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We now have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who ever lives to make intercession for us. What Job did not have Job longed for, we remember Job said, Oh, if I only had someone who could go, God, between me and you and take up my case if there was just a mediator. But even then he said, I know my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. How Job knew that, I don't know. Because chronologically speaking, most theologians think the book of Job was actually written and penned before Moses even wrote the first five books of the Bible. So when you talk about somebody who was standing without any revelation and inspiration, you're talking about Job. All he had was that relationship with God and what he had passed down verbally from ancestors going up into that time. But now we are in a different position. Is there still an accuser of their brethren? Is there still an adversary? Is there still that great serpent of old? Well, sure he is. But he has been rendered powerless against those who know Christ because he did not defeat the Christ child. War did break out in heaven and Satan lost. And all of his angels were cast down to the earth and he no longer has the power, well, let me say this, he no longer has the authority to accuse those who are the brethren, those who are truly born again, those who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because now the Holy Spirit will rise up and testify an affirmation that no, you belong to the king. Now when the enemy brings an accusation, he has to hurt it from the earth because he's no longer in the courtrooms of heaven and when he does a great intercessor arises and says oh no that doesn't stick they're covered in my blood now we are free because of this child oh Satan tried to defeat him and that's really what the Christmas story is about God came and spoiled all of Satan's plans he won back everything that Adam and Eve had lost we go on and we read this in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength of the kingdom of our God has come. Satan's been cast down. Now notice verse 11. He's talking about us now. He's talking about believers. So as we still have this enemy. Notice what it said earlier. It says, what does Satan do? He deceives. His, why, why is that what he does? Because that's all he can do. Because with the people of God, he's been, his power has been crushed. The seed of the woman, Christ, has crushed the head of the serpent. His power and authority has been crushed, but he does deceive. He lies. 
Jesus said Satan is a liar and he's the father of all lies. So he lies to us. He lies to us and he tells us that, well, God really doesn't love you. How could he love you because of this or because of that? Or how could God answer your prayers because of this or because of that? Or you know what? That you're never going to be any better than you are right now. Nothing's ever really going to change. You name it. He lies. That's all he knows how to do. He's one of those people, if his, if his lips are moving, he's lying. That's just the way it is. But boy, he can make those lies. He can dress them up and make them look. He can almost make them look spiritual. He can almost make it sound like they're coming from God himself. Matter of fact, that's what he's really good at. The Bible even says he's an angel of light. He goes around and parades about. He doesn't come up, and I've said this before, but he doesn't come up and whisper in your ear and say, hey, I'm Satan, the accuser, the devil, the adversary. I've come to destroy. He comes up and says, hey, I'm the Holy Spirit. Let me talk to you for a while. And he mixes just enough truth with a lie to make you think there's some authenticity to it. But just a little bit of a lie mixed in with the truth is enough to bring destruction. Not because Satan has the power to do it, but because you've yielded to the deception that he's brought into your life. But here he tells us how we overcome. Verse 11, I love this verse. The saints overcame him, even though he's been cast down to the earth, we don't have to worry about it because the saints overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and the fact that they did not love their lives to the death. The blood of the Lamb. That's why his deception can't work because I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Whenever he comes to me to tell me why God won't answer my prayer or why, why do I think God's listening to me or why do I think God's going to bless me or why do I think I have favor with God or why do I think he's going to move in this next generation or why do I think that America still has hope or why do I think that it doesn't matter what he's saying. I can combat that by talking about the covenant that I have with Jesus sealed by his very own eternal blood that was sinless, spotless blood. So then when he pipes up and tells me, yeah, but you're not sinless. You've messed up and you've done this and you were doubting just yesterday and you were battling with fear yesterday and, and you lost your temper yesterday and whatever he wants to name and whatever he wants to say, I can say, yeah, but it's not my blood that redeems me. It's the blood of the sinless lamb of God that never did fail and never will fail and never can fail his blood redeems me we overcome by this covenant that we have that Jesus sealed I don't overcome because and you don't overcome because of any work of righteousness that works of righteousness are good don't get me wrong I know I say this a lot it's good that we do good things as a matter of fact the Bible says that by our good works people should be able to look and see who we belong to so it's good that we do good things but you need to understand Good things aren't like the little things you stack on a scale to, to make it look like we're doing better and better or to get an audience with God. Those things mean nothing as far as our acceptance with God. There's only one thing that, that ranks in heaven, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. So we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the word of our testimony, and there's two elements to that. Number one, we overcome by the word of our testimony. This is the word of the covenant. 
So it's absolutely vital that we know the promises of Scripture. It's absolutely vital that we know what God has said about us, what God has said about the future, what God has said about the world, what God has said about the enemy. We have to know. We overcome by the word of our testimony. And it also, the other side of that, is it's my personal relationship with the word. It's not just something that somebody told me. I've, I've been blessed to have a lot of great teachers, a lot of great mentors, people who many of them have either gone on to heaven or are moving towards that direction. And I'm blessed, so blessed, to have had great teachers and preachers in my life, great examples in my life. And those examples go a long way, but they're not enough to help me overcome the enemy in my life today. I've got to have a personal relationship with the Savior. I've got to know the book. I've got to believe the book. I've got to act upon God's Word myself. It's not enough just to come to church on Wednesday night or Sunday morning and hear a message and affirm, shake your head or whatever, wave your hand or, or get on Facebook and like, a, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. It's got to become personal. It's got to become real. It's got to be something that you adapt into your life. You know, the Bible talks about the fact that God's people are destroyed because of a lack of of knowledge, things they don't know. And he's not talking about just trivial information. He's not talking about the things you learn on the nightly news. He's talking about a lack of knowing him and a lack of knowing what he said in his word. What we don't know can destroy us spiritually. If we're truly children of God, we'll spend eternity in heaven, but we will go through a lot of defeat here, much of which is unnecessary. We're all going to face battles. We're all going to fall sometimes. But we don't have to fall every day, and we don't have to be defeated all the time. Matter of fact, even when we fall, we're not defeated because we're in Christ. But it's got to become personal. It's got to become real. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the word of their testimony. And then the key to that, too, is that they loved not their lives to the death. Jesus was more important to them than life. Doing what God wanted was more important than their convenience, their comfort, their dreams, their ambitions, their desires. I promise you, if the early New Testament church had valued temporary things as much as the, new, the church of today values temporary things, it would have failed. Because they would have never been willing to be martyrs for something that wasn't worth more to them than life itself. And I would challenge you today, and I have no idea where, where we're going. I have no idea what the future holds for this nation or any other nation. I know that in the last days, uh, it, it, at least the way I read Scripture, and maybe I'm misinterpreting it, and it's all going to be a bed of roses and glory. That's great. But the way I read Scripture, it don't look that way to me. looks like it's going to be tough everywhere around the world, and particularly for those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, then we can't value our conveniences and our comforts more than we value our Savior. Because if we do, you'll be finding ways to compromise. And the New Testament church, they were willing to die rather than compromise their faith in Christ. So he says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because, I love this though, uh, you know, you could get, could be sad to say, oh no, we're here on the earth and he has great wrath and even the, even the writer says, woe unto you who live on the earth. Well, that's me. But notice that last little phrase. He knows that his time is short. Satan knows that his time is limited. He is living on borrowed time. He knows it's running out. He knows that the time is ticking away for him. And, you know, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I was even praying this today. It doesn't take too long. Part of, of society today, has to. you have to almost be on some level of social media to communicate. And then there are times when I wish that you didn't because there's always somebody. It's always, you know, this, that, the other. And, and I, w- I was reading today, and I thought, yeah, that's right. And, oh, Lord, what's coming? And, oh, it's my, oh, my goodness. And then I remembered this verse. I've been quoting it a lot lately. Jesus said, when you see these things beginning to come to pass, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. Now, let me tell you something. If, if this is home, this, and if this is all we live for and all we dream of, then losing this will shake us to the core. But if this is not home, if this is temporary and my real home and what I'm really dreaming of and longing for is there, then losing this just gets me one step closer to that. And even though I may not rejoice in losing this because of the hurt and the pain it may bring to others, I can still rejoice because it's putting me one step closer to home. And that, But see, the key is, where is home? Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, where's your treasure? If it's on this earth, then my goodness, if things start going, going wrong and going south, then that's where our treasure is. We're going to panic. But if our treasure in he- is in heaven, I promise you, it won't matter what happens on Wall Street. Heaven's going to be just fine. And it won't matter what happens in Washington. Heaven's going to be just fine. It's not going to matter what happens in Main Street in Calvert City. Heaven's going to still be just fine. Nothing is going to shake the courtroom of heaven, and that's home. So he says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. He's angry. Why is he angry? (laughs) Because he was foiled. He thought he had the seed done away with. But he came marching out of the grave on the third day and he ascended into heaven and he knows that the promise is he's coming back. And then what really gets him is that he sent the Holy Spirit (laughs) to dwell within clay vessels, dust, (laughs) dust houses. That's who we are. We're formed from the dust and it just really eats him up that God's given authority to you and me that if we understand it, We can exercise authority over him in the name of Jesus who already is his arch enemy and he hates it and he's angry and he knows his time is running out and whatever he's got to do, he's got to do it quick. And guys, that may be fierce and nobody ever said it was going to be easy, but it is exciting. It is exciting. So, verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth... What did he do? 
Well, the child had been taken up, so he persecuted the woman. That's Israel. He persecuted Israel who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the... And I do realize there are some prophecy teachers who see possibly America in that because of the great eagle. I don't know that I follow that that far, but if you want to believe that, that's just fine. Either way, God rescued her and preserved Israel. No matter what the enemy tried to do, he preserves her. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and a times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Otherwise, the attention is going to shift from Israel for the serpent to someone or something else. So the serpent spewed water. Usually water can represent masses of people. So he spewed water or masses like a flood out of his mouth after the woman that it might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. If you, I don't have time tonight, but if you ever get the time to go back into some of the, for instance, the Six-Day War that took place against Israel in different places, it's amazing some of the miracles that took place within the land and stuff like that. You could not say it's anything but God that spared the nation of Israel during those times. But verse 17, the dragon was enraged. Hey, this isn't just an average anger. He's beside himself with anger with the woman. So, he's tried everything he can. Nothing's worked because God has supernaturally protected her. So, he goes now to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they? They're the ones who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he turns his attention to persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Did you know there have been more Christians martyred in this century than in almost all the centuries before us? You don't hear about it on the news. But Christians are being killed around the world every day. They're being slaughtered in the Middle East. They're being slaughtered in all kinds of places, imprisoned and tortured and, and co- property confiscated all over the world. And now the American church is starting to stand up and take notice because we see some of our own religious freedoms seeming to come under attack. And people are starting to wonder how long are we going to have the freedom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ publicly without possible repercussions or whatever the case may be. Well, you're just seeing biblical, you're seeing Revelation 12 fleshed out every day. Why is all of this happening? Well, it's because so-and-so is, is, is in, the, in, in this place of political power and this is that. Those are just side things. Why is this happening? Because the serpent is enraged because he knows that his time is limited. He has lost again and again and again and again, and he's trying, since he could not defeat and devour the child, then his desire is to defeat and devour the offspring of the woman. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Since he cannot defeat the Lord, his desire is to defeat the church, of Je- the bride of Christ. But the good news is, he's going to lose again. And you say, well, what does any of that have to do with Christmas? Because you see, 
God had the most unbelievable, unlikely plan. I love the way God did this. There's this great cosmic warfare that we never had the privilege of seeing, except that thankfully John wrote it down here. We, we got the privilege of going behind the scenes here, just like we did in Job. Two places where you get to go behind the scenes and see spiritual warfare. Daniel did that a little bit as well. And you get to see what goes on behind the curtains. You get to see the things that are happening that on a normal basis, all you see are the effects of what happens. You don't get to see what's actually happening. But here in Revelation 12, John just writes it down for you. And he goes back in history, and he gives all of us a history lesson from heaven's perspective. This is what happened. God gave this prophecy that we talked about in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman is going to crush your power one day. You think you've done something today, but I'm telling you already, the Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Had a plan before you ever showed up in the garden. Had a plan before you ever rebelled. You may think you've won a victory today, but you haven't won the victory. This woman's seed will one day crush your power and authority. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. Every time I see something stirring, I'll just take care of that. So he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried. Read the Bible. Read the, why do I need to read the Old Testament? If you read it with your eyes looking for Christ, you'll see that the enemy was trying over and in, over and over and over again to mess with this seed. He was always trying to destroy and corrupt this seed. Why was he doing that? Because he never had the power. He never had the authority. It was all usurped. God has always had the power, and God has always had the plan, and God has always had the authority, and God has always been in control. But he's tried, and he's tried, and finally this male child is born in Bethlehem. (laughs) How did he miss him? Because he wasn't looking in a cave in a feed trough. Oh, he might have been looking in a castle. He might have been looking in a king's court. He might have been looking for a place where trumpets were blaring and flags were waving to herald the new king, but he wasn't looking in a stable or more likely a cave and a manger. And the announcement, you see, it wasn't made in the public thoroughfares to the rich and the powerful. It was made to lowly shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the first few people that see this newborn king outside of the the shepherds are Simeon and Anna. Well, he's not paying attention to them because, goodness, Anna, she, she's got to be getting ready to breathe her last. And, and Simeon, he's kind of getting old too. Oh, but they've been waiting for the Redeemer. They've been praying for the Messiah. And God had revealed that they wouldn't, wouldn't pass on until they saw this child. And they immediately recognized him when Mary and Joseph were bringing him in to fulfill the rites of the law. And they prophesy. And they bless Mary and Joseph. And they bless the child. And these kings from the east see the star it's interesting they're saying that one star will shine again around december the 21st i think that's kind of ironic 
First time since the 1200s, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a long, long time. And they saw that star, and they knew that a king was born to the Jews. And these kings come, and, and when the, about the time the enemy does get wind, oh, maybe I messed it. Those wise men deceived my puppet king, Herod. So we'll just go back and we'll catch up to him. But the angel of the Lord says you need to take the mother and the child and you need to go to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill the child. How are we going to do it and how are we going to survive? You see these kings, they came from the east and they brought gifts. Oh, we just do Christmas plays and sneak because all our kids come in in bathrobes and towels and it's all cute and I, I like it too. And, and they've got, you know, the little gifts in the boxes, but there was a reason for those gifts. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. How do you think a carpenter and his wife survived for those years? You see, at every turn that the enemy was ready to devour the child, God had a plan. He had already paved the path. And then Jesus walks on to the scene when John the Baptist is baptizing. And nobody else recognizes him. He's just the carpenter's son. Matter of fact, there have been whispers about his birth and everybody kind of just wondered about this strange couple that had this strange story about this one child, their firstborn. But then John the Baptist looks up and he says, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Because when he was baptized, he saw the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove and a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then some of the disciples of John start to follow after Jesus. And Jesus says, if you'll follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately leave their nets. They immediately leave their profession. And they follow after Jesus. And he gets one that not, wouldn't have chosen those disciples. How did the enemy miss it? Because Jesus grabbed the most ragtag group of people. It wasn't an army that he was putting together. Uh, Why the enemy might have noticed that. It, 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 he grabbed the, the most motley crew looking of folks that you would ever imagine. Matter of fact, he put people together that couldn't even get along with one another. He put zealots and tax collectors together. Well, this is just real easy now given the current culture. He put the most liberal liberal and the most conservative conservative together on his team but then he started doing miracles walking on water calming storms multiplying loaves and fishes preaching good news to the poor and then he starts trying to stir up the crowd and then there's this beautiful story this one time where the crowd begins to, they want to kill him. They want to push him off a hill. Remember this? And he just walks right through the crowd. <laughs> He's outnumbered, but he just walks right through the crowd. And the Bible says why he did it was because his time had not yet come. So even though Satan was beginning to recognize who he was, he couldn't do anything about it until the time came. But then when the time came, Jesus kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, if there's any way, Father, that this cup can pass from me, let it do so, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And, and then the temple guard comes with, from the chief priest and the garden and the Judas betrays him with a kiss. And Peter tries to defend him. He takes up his sword, but Jesus tells him to put away his sword. He said, this is what I came for. This is what I came for. 
And so he allows himself to be taken and beaten and spit upon and humiliated. A crown of thorns pushed into his brow and crucified. And again, Satan thinks, I got it. One day, two days, but on the third day, he rose again. Satan is defeated, and now we overcome him by that blood and by his word and not loving our lives unto the death. Oh, he's, he's enraged, all right, and he's making war. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I've seen some beautiful, beautiful Christmas displays through the years, and I love them. When I was a kid, we didn't have anywhere near us anyway. I don't think they really had it back then. The parks that had all of the lights in one place, you couldn't do that. So what my family would do and what we even did with our kids when they were younger before the parks had the lights is we'd just pick a night. We'd get in the car and we'd bundle up and turn the heat on because usually it's cold that time of the year. And we just drive around the county. And we'd go, you'd know the certain places that the houses would really decorate real big. And you'd go down the road and you'd see all the different lights. Then you'd drive to another neighborhood and you'd see the lights. And the way we did it, just because I like ice cream, we'd always finish up at Dairy Queen and get some ice cream and hot chocolate and play Christmas music in the car, you know, and go home. And those were wonderful days. And I've seen some beautiful, beautiful displays. And, of course, since the parks now have all these very elaborate displays, I've even seen even greater displays. But there was never a more beautiful sight than a little baby boy in a feeding trough on a cold night surrounded by domestic beast, cattle and sheep, born to a peasant girl and a carpenter. It was God's knockout punch. I don't like boxing. If you're a boxing fan, forgive me, but I was never a big boxing fan. Never was. The only time in my entire life I ever watched any boxing matches with any frequency was back in the day when Muhammad Ali was in the latter years of his boxing career. There was a guy named Leon Spinks. I don't know if anybody will remember that name. But he was boxing Muhammad Ali. I was probably in third or fourth grade. I don't think I'd ever watched a boxing match before in my life, but it was Muhammad Ali, and I happened to catch it on TV. You didn't have cable TV back then, so whatever was on. And by the way, kids didn't get to choose what you watched back then. Whatever mom and dad were watching, that's what the kids watched too. And so for whatever reason, my, my parents, neither one of them are sports fans, but for whatever reason, dad decided that he was going to watch that match. So that was the first time I ever watched a boxing match. And what a match to watch. If you remember that night, nobody, had, no, nobody really had heard, or at least that I knew, of Leon Speaks. But man, out of the middle of nowhere, he brought a punch out 
that Muhammad Ali, he was not flying like a butterfly or floating like a bee or whatever he said he did, not right then. He clocked him. And since back then, I kind of like the underdog. I decided me. But the thing was, he didn't think he could lose. He didn't expect that punch. He wasn't expecting to lose, but he did. Satan sure didn't expect God's knockout punch to be a little baby boy in a feed trough in a little backwoods hick town. Listen, Bethlehem was just a small little town. The only reason he was where he was is because nobody could find room for Mary and Joseph. There was no vacancy anywhere. But that was God's knockout punch. I want to close tonight with this thought. Jesus is still God's knockout punch. He did it once and for all. He won this thing once and for all. And about the time you least expect it, sorry, amen. About the time you least expect it, victory comes out of the most unexpected and unlikely places. That's just the way God is. So it may look unlikely and it may be unexpected in your life today, but if that's not what we celebrate at Christmas, I really don't know what it is. It's the fact that Jesus has come, Jesus has won, Jesus rules, and Jesus is coming again. It started in Bethlehem, but it certainly doesn't end there. And we have reason to rejoice, and the good news is we've already seen. We saw the beginning of the story Sunday. We see the end of it from heaven's perspective tonight. God has won this thing already. It's just a matter of picking up the pieces and sorting out the details, and we are on the winning side if you are a child of the king. All you got to do, stay in a place where you understand it's the blood that is your victory. Know what the covenant means. Make sure that it's authentic and real. Live by this word, and make sure that your real life is hidden with Christ in God, not here. And it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at you. You're going to be victorious. I want you to bow your heads with me tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this time together in your presence. We thank you for this time in your word. Lord God, I may not know all of the details and all of the reasons why you sent this specific word tonight among this specific group of people, but you do. I don't believe there are coincidences. So Lord, tonight there's something in this message that each of us need. We may all pick something else than the other one, but we all need something here tonight. You sent this word for a purpose, and I thank you it will not return to you void. It will accomplish that purpose tonight. We thank you for that word working, and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.